You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Treat inclusion as part of your business, as part of your culture, and as you would any other business imperative. There are things that you can do that can be small but meaningful to people. And when they feel seen, when they feel valued, it can change their approach to the culture, their approach to the workplace and the approach to their job. Investing in the market is about more than just money. It's about investing in your future and your choices. It's investing in you. If you're looking to optimize your investment strategy, visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. I'm very excited for this conversation that we are about to have because I am talking with someone who's really paved the way for women in tech, which as many of you know, is a field that has inspired a lot of innovation and a lot of progress, but has also historically been regressive when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Ellen Powell experienced this firsthand as a partner at the Silicon Valley venture capital firm Kleiner Perkins, where she and Other female colleagues were cut out of important meetings and email discussions and left out of networking opportunities and punished for speaking out about their treatment. All of this led Ellen to file a gender discrimination lawsuit against the firm in 2012. The trial sparked a national conversation around sexism in tech, forcing companies to take a good hard look at their treatment of female employees and giving a platform for women in tech to speak up. That spark has now been called the POW effect. Ellen went on to become interim CEO at Reddit, where she cracked down on misogyny and harassment on the platform. And in 2016, she and seven other women leaders in tech founded Project Include, which is a not-for-profit organization that uses research and advocacy to increase diversity and inclusion in their field and beyond. Most recently, she wrote the book Reset, My Fight for Inclusion and Lasting Change. It chronicles her efforts to make workplaces better for women, better for people of color. Ellen, I'm very excited to talk to you about your experiences, where we sit now, and how we can create some real lasting change as we head into 2023. It's nice to see you. Thank you so much for having me. And what a great conversation to have at such a difficult time. It is a difficult time. It's continued to be a difficult time, particularly for women. You've had a long career in tech. You've been at the very top of the leadership ladder. Where do you think that we sit right now? Where are we? What kind of a grade would you give us? Oh, I feel like we've made some progress, so we're not failing. But I do think the word that you used, regressive, is so perfect to describe this time. I feel like we've made some progress. We've had, you know, the second wave of Me Too. We've had more women leaders who are Black and Latinx and Asian and Indigenous. But 
all of a sudden now there's so much pushback. You know, it comes with Elon Musk taking over Twitter and deciding, oh, it's a free for all if you want to criticize and harass people from these marginalized identities. So it's not really free speech. It's more like this return to all of the hate and the discrimination that we've always experienced and now in an even blatant way, right? Like we now know that there is discrimination. We now know that there are systems that are making it harder for people from different groups to succeed. And there's a certain group of people who are saying like, that's good and we want to preserve that. And now we're up against that in a much more blatant and open way. Let's take a step back. And for those of our listeners who are not as familiar with you, I want to get a bit of your story. What brought you into technology? What attracted you to it? I just remember growing up and it was just a different time, right? We didn't have these phones that moved with us. Everything was wired. Everything was different. And all of a sudden in the 90s, there were just all these new tech companies that were doing these really exciting things where you could communicate with anyone around the world without having to pay $10 a minute to do it. You could find all the information that you wanted on this amazing thing called the internet. You could email, you could communicate in so many different ways and learn so many different things and have access to all of this information in a way that we just hadn't had before. And this idea of being able to be part of that, to be able to help build all of these awesome tools and services was really exciting to me. So after I worked as a lawyer for a little bit, I went back to business school to figure out how to get into the tech sector and came to Silicon Valley in 1998 at a very exciting time when things were really changing. And we didn't have cell phones that were ubiquitous back then. It was just a different world. Yeah. And you've talked about how you grew up with the idea that technology, that the workplace in general was a meritocracy where hard work and innovation are generally rewarded. They generally pay off. And I know that you're more critical of that idea now. When did this belief that technology was an equal playing field change for you? I think there were little indications early on where I could see, wow, this person really doesn't know what they're talking about, but people are listening This is interesting to me because it seems pretty clear to me that they're not well-informed or they don't have the data for what they're arguing for and they're actually being listened to. And over time, I would see more incidents of, oh, this person got promoted or this person got this project. And it started to form a pattern when I was at Kleiner Perkins where I really noticed that the men were getting opportunities that the women were not. And at one point, I noticed that we never interviewed while I was there that I know of a Black candidate or a Latinx candidate for any of the investing roles. And we barely hired anybody in those categories for any role. So it was becoming clear and clear to me that it was a more systemic problem. And there was one point where I thought it was me. Like if I worked harder, this should be a meritocracy. If I you know, followed all the feedback, but the feedback would be, oh, you're too aggressive. Or, and at the same time, it'd be like, you're too quiet. So there was no way to thread this needle of becoming what they wanted me to be or doing what I needed to do. It wasn't consistent. There was no way to, to succeed. And one day I realized like they had promoted almost all of the men into the next fund and none of the women. Mm. Wow, this is not just a me problem. This is happening to all of the women. And this is a sexism problem. 
yeah, a sex as a man, a racism problem. And you're totally right. It's not you. I mean, we pulled the data and the data backs you up. The overall representation of black and Latinx workers in technology is in the single digits. And even though Asian Americans are strongly represented, they are not likely to be promoted. There's a general feeling that they aren't, quote unquote, leadership material. And women, as you said, they're also underrepresented in these executive positions. So you noticed this was happening at your firm. When did you decide this is not a problem that I can handle on my own? This is a problem that I need to bring in some lawyers and help me with. I remember talking to some of the other women at Kleiner Perkins, and they were raising issues that were like similar to mine, but they would have other specific issues that they brought up. So one woman was really upset because we had this firm-wide meeting and the women were put in the back row and not in the center row. And they were at the end of this full days of events, myself and another woman was asked to take down all the notes from the different whiteboards that were used. And the other woman refused. She said no. And I was frozen because I was like, oh, I should be taking the notes. They asked me to take the notes, but I don't want to disrespect you know, this woman who's making a stand. So I didn't do anything, but it was so uncomfortable for me. And then we talked about all of the other ways that women were blocked from opportunities or given worse tasks to do and treated as second-class citizens. As we started talking, it became clear like this was a really big problem. And we brought it up with one of the partners who said, oh, why don't you women get together and talk about it? And I said, look, but that's not going to change anything. That's preaching to the choir. Like Many of us are seeing that, you know, are understanding this problem and we need you to do something about it. We need other people to actually implement the changes. But that didn't happen. And it was just very hard to get people who had built and succeeded within the system to really think about changing the system. And at one point I realized, I think one of the other women in the firm said she had talked to a lot of other female venture capitalists who were all experiencing this problem. And it became clear, like, this is really a much bigger problem. And they were not going to change. I wrote them a letter. It was in, you know, a memo, like, here are all the problems. And they had no interest in doing anything about it. I tried to, to leave amicably and just make these changes. And you don't have to deal with me. Just make this a better place. And they just could not process the fact that there was a problem that they needed to address. And that's when I consulted with a lawyer and then decided to litigate. As you said, it is really much beyond the tech industry, right? After I sued, all of a sudden people came from all other industries to tell me that they had similar experiences. Were you frightened? There was one point where I was very nervous because I didn't know what their exit path was. It was like, if I sue and this becomes public, it's not going to have a good outcome for them. Like this stuff I know. And in talking to other people, I realize other people will also view it as something that's seriously wrong. And how do they get out of this where they care so much about their reputation and the perception in the market? And I was nervous about would I be able to get another job? What were they going to do to me? What were they going to do to my family? They said terrible things about my work performance. They had the press, you know, they had hired a PR firm that really went out to smear me. Mm -hmm. And 
I didn't know if I'd be able to get another job. I didn't know if I was safe. Like what what else were they going to do to me? Because I don't know how they get out of this. Yeah, it became a huge spectacle in Silicon Valley. And there were personal attacks made against you and against your family. And ultimately, you lost the suit. But as you said, other women at Facebook and Twitter and Microsoft and companies outside of tech came out and they filed gender discrimination lawsuits. And you sparked a movement. You sparked a movement where many companies were forced to confront the racism and the sexism happening in their workplaces. As you sit heading into 2023 and you look back at everything that has happened, why do you think that it has had such legs? Why do you think it resonated with so many for so long? I think it's because it's true, right? It's true that there's discrimination. It's true that there's harassment. It's true that there's bias in the system and that it's a systemic problem. Now that we're addressing it or trying to address it and we're calling it out and there, it's happened to so many people, like it's so real for so many people that it's hard to then go back to pretending that it doesn't exist, to ignoring it. Because once you have experienced it and you know what to call it and you stop feeling ashamed about it, you realize it's not you. You can't not understand what's happening and you can't not understand that it's happening to other people. I think there's also a lot more conversation about it. So when I initially sued, the New York Times ran an article where they interviewed somebody who had written a book about Silicon Valley. And that author said, I've written this whole something to the effect of, as the expert, he said, I have not heard about this. Nobody's talked to me about this, so I'm skeptical, right? So there was this belief that tech was a meritocracy and that there was a fairness to it and that people weren't treated poorly and that if I were calling it out, then I'm an outlier and I'm, you know, some people use the word crazy. I'm not speaking the truth, but then lots of other people parts of the story would resonate with them. Oh, I got, my mom got pushed into a broom closet of an office when she got promoted. And that part of you being moved to a bad office resonated with me. Or my coworker was harassed at work. And I wouldn't believe it except she heard your story and she told me about her experience. And now I believe it too, because it happened to somebody I know and I trust and I believe, but I would not have believed it if she hadn't told me. People started talking about it. And once, you know, Jeannie came out of the bottle, you couldn't put it back in. And I think that's what keeps it going. It's that, you know, these things have happened to people. They believe it. They're telling other people who believe it. And this whole attitude towards, you know, the meritocratic ideal in Silicon Valley has changed where people now understand it's not a meritocracy. There are a lot of problems and we're now witnessing like the problems affecting everybody because these products are not made in a way that includes a lot of perspectives and they're not targeting the full breadth of people's backgrounds when the customer base. And so, the, you know, you see all of these problems now manifesting in really serious and dangerous ways. And we're going to talk about that and also what your organization, Project Include, is doing to help fix the situation, to level set, to raise awareness, but really to address the problems that still exist 
in technology and in other fields. Before we do that, though, let me take a second to remind everyone that we are proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines because when it comes to investing, confidence is key. Confidence in your ability, your knowledge, your strategy. If you are ready to do more with your investments, then visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney, where you can schedule a free appointment with a financial advisor. You can review your current situation with an expert, get tailored investment strategies to help you build and grow and preserve your wealth. Get started at planefe.com slash hermoney. Do more for your future right now. I am talking with Ellen Powell, former CEO of Reddit, co-founder and CEO of Project Include. So your organization has done a lot of great research on how companies can make their workplaces more inclusive. And I know on your website, you've got a very thorough list of recommendations that our listeners should take a look at for tech leaders to improve their companies. Tell me a little bit about that. Clearly, we still have not just issues, we still have big issues. And the pandemic, I think, set us back many years, sadly. Where do we begin if we want to make ourselves and our companies better? The most effective way is to treat inclusion as part of your business, as part of your culture, and as you would any other business imperative. So you should be looking at it with metrics. You should be measuring to see how successful your executive team and your managers are at building it into the company culture. And you should be holding people accountable if they are not inclusive, if they're not fair, if they're not acting in a way that's treating everybody equitably and giving people the same opportunities. So that's the piece that we really believe is part of what is going to lead to success. It's thinking about accountability through metrics. It's including everyone. So they're, you know, it's very tempting to say, okay, I'm going to include one segment of the population. Often they start with women and I'm going to include women because it's too hard to do everyone. So I'm just going to make it more inclusive for women. And what that ends up doing is preserving the exclusion, the exclusive, the non-inclusive culture And just adding a few more people into some things. But usually it doesn't mean that you're bringing women in as full and equal employees into every part of the business. It's just, okay, I'm checking a box to include a couple more women into a couple more activities, but I'm not actually changing the culture to be inclusive. And I'm also leaving behind all of these other people from other groups that I've not included for so long. So making sure that you're including everyone and then also thinking about it from a comprehensive way. So it's not just, I'm going to hire a couple people or I'm going to add one person to my board. It's really, how do I make sure that everything that I do from hiring to recruiting to paying people to promoting people to giving them opportunities to every event that I hold, that everybody that is in the company has a way to participate and has an opportunity to do their best work, to be part of the group, to contribute in a way that allows them to do their best work. What I like about your list of ways that companies can work to solve the problem is that it also focuses on company culture. It focuses on mentorship opportunities, how mentors and managers give feedback, the softer, squishier parts of a company that can actually hide 
a lot of bias. Can you talk a little bit about the recommendations for changing company culture and why it's important to do that and how to do it? Yeah, a lot of it is just thinking about it from the perspective that, you know, you don't have to do everything the same way every company has done it forever because a lot of those processes are broken. So from the startup perspective, a lot of times you hire your friends, you hire your friends from college and often they look like you or, you know, as one CEO said, not all my friends are white men. Like he went through a process where he wanted to bring in more candidates and to have a more diverse team. And he said, I just need to go through like my LinkedIn account and look for all of my contacts. And I realized I have a lot of contacts who are not white men and I should be pulling from those contacts and expanding my view of who is within my network and not just thinking about what's easiest, but thinking about like, from a broader perspective. And when you start looking at metrics, like what are the demographics on these different teams and what are the demographics of who's being promoted and what are the demographics of who's being laid off in these days? And then also there are all these tools that allow you to look at compensation and how is compensation across demographics, across different teams, and are you paying people fairly? So there there are tools and there are services and there are products that allow you to really think about each activity that you're doing, like events? Are you thinking about parents? Are you having it during a time when they need to pick up their kids or when they need to get dinner for their children? Or are you thinking about how people from different religions are experiencing the week, right? There are things that you can do that can be small, but meaningful to people. And when they feel seen, when they feel valued, it can change their approach to the culture, their approach to the workplace and the approach to their job. I think one of the things that somebody said was like, when they built their company, there was like this kind of traditional Silicon Valley ping pong table that once they took that out of the equation and thought about different ways of doing it, and once they changed their culture, he said he felt much better about going into the office. Like he had also felt like a little overwhelmed by this stereotypical company culture. And once he loosened it to be more inclusive, he felt more included himself as CEO. That's interesting. That's interesting. Flip the script for me and put on the hat of an employee and maybe an employee at a small company where every next hire is hard and you want to get it right and you're trying to build. How do employees bring up these kind of conversations? And how do employees push for this kind of change? I think employees are in a tough spot because sometimes they don't have that much power to create change. They don't have the ability to decide budget sometimes. They don't have the ability to decide when something is going to happen, but they do have the ability to speak up, right? So Often it's easier for somebody else to speak up when one person's not being included than the person who's not being included. So being able to speak up and say, hey, I'm not a parent, but this seems like having like a three-day overnight work trip might not be the best thing for parents who have kids at home that 
they won't be able to be with. And to also get other people to raise that idea and see if other people are in agreement and then to bring it up as a group, right? Where you can have safety in numbers Mm -hmm. and also a little bit of a critical mass. This isn't a me issue. This is like a broader issue and something to think about. Thinking about the small piece of the world that you are able to control. Hey, if I'm, you know, making a team lunch, then maybe I want to make it, you know, instead of at a steakhouse at some place where people who don't eat meat would feel comfortable or instead of having it be like everybody going out to get for drinks, maybe it's like a meal so that people who don't drink can also enjoy themselves. So, you know, the small things that you can control, thinking about all of these details, but the bigger things where you don't have control over, it's finding people to bring up the issue as a, in a group. It's not easy. So these conversations are hard. We're still not good at them. There's Still a lot of sensitivity around, oh, if you're bringing this up, you're calling me a racist or you're calling me anti-parent or you're calling me a bad person. But it's not. It's like we are in a process of change and here are some suggestions. But that's sometimes not how it's taken. And it can be hard to have those conversations or you may be afraid that it won't go well. But this is what we need to do in order to make change happen. I like the idea of safety in numbers. I like the idea of doing a little crowdsourcing within your department or within your group from your colleagues before you make the approach. I think that that would feel certainly a little bit safer to me. Let's wrap this conversation where we began it, and let's talk a little bit more about what's happening in tech today. It's been a really rocky year with mass layoffs at Meta and Amazon and DoorDash and I could go on and and a fair number of leadership scandals. Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter has led to a rise in hate speech on the platform. Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of FTX, under investigation for mismanaging billions of dollars in customer funds. Do you see a connection between the issues that tech companies have had in the past year and the industry's long-term issues with gender and diversity? I think there is a connection. And roughly that connection is like there is an over-indexing on these white men who are charismatic, right? The ability to tell a story and to share a huge vision that's super ambitious and to potentially be able to drive billions or even trillions of dollars of value into the ecosystem is incredibly enticing. The idea that only men can do this, you know, it's usually white men who are the people who are causing these problems, is something that seems to be lost on the venture capitalists. This has happened again and again. We have WeWork, we have, you know, so many companies where they've overinvested in the founder, allowed the founder to piling in more money to cover up weaknesses in their business models and their leadership. And then all of a sudden the whole thing implodes and billions of dollars lost in investment money, thousands of jobs lost, and a product that didn't really help people as much as it helped the investors who were trying to make money out of it. While we're talking about Twitter and social media, when you were CEO of Reddit, you made it the first platform to ban unauthorized nude photos and revenge porn. You strengthened the anti 
harassment policy. It led to you receiving a lot of backlash at the time from Reddit users. What has it taught you about how we should moderate social media to make it a safer place? goes back to the last question you asked. Again, we've funded these white men to create these platforms and they don't have the same experiences that other people have with harassment on their platform. So it's not until much later that they realize, oh, actually this open free speech policy that I've been promoting is problematic, right? So I think there's, people have to have an understanding that there are competing values that need to be balanced. So this idea of privacy and safety from harassment needs to be balanced with the ability to express your opinion. We've never had platforms that have been free-for-alls, really. There's always been blockage of spam. A lot of most, especially the large social media platforms, have shut down discussions around terrorism, especially you know, in the last few years, and there's always been a limit on child pornography. So it's never been a free-for-all. And this idea that you're going to create a free-for-all to protect, it ends up being, I'm going to protect myself and my own views and my own interests, which are often not inclusive and biased. And recently we've seen it's like hate-filled. I think there needs to be some regulation. Like we now understand that these platforms cannot manage themselves. We had the genocide that was promoted and, and carried out through Facebook. We've had all of these, you know, the insurrection that was carried out on Twitter, all of these things, you know, and the domestic terrorism that's happening with individuals shooting up schools or other um, areas of gathering. It's time to stop, you know, to, how do we keep our community safe? And a lot of it now is digital. And how do we keep our community safe on digital? We need the government to regulate and make sure that people can be safe, that people, that everybody gets a choice to chance to express their opinions in this similar way. And they don't have to be harassed. They don't have to have their families threatened. They don't have to feel unsafe and censor themselves because there is no management on the social media platforms. Okay, last question. There's a young woman. She is graduating from college. She's heard that tech is a promising career path for young people. What advice do you give her? I think in many ways, the women and people from traditionally marginalized groups are in a better position going into these companies than, you know, than when I came out of college because there is an understanding of what is actually going on in those places. You know, they don't have to go through the decades of, you know, my generation where we were trying to fix ourselves, where we didn't understand that there was a problem. We thought it was a meritocracy and we were busy trying to fit in, busy trying to follow like inconsistent feedback and trying to kind of understand, like analyze, like, what did that really mean? Like, how am I supposed to do both of these things that are inconsistent? And you can get a much better understanding of, oh, like this is a role where they are never going to promote me, right? Like you can have that clarity much earlier, or I'm going to find an organization that is less um, biased, that is more open to, you know, that has more diversity and has more inclusion. So you know what to look for. And, you know, there's no perfect company out there, but perhaps you can get into one that's better and not as bad. So, you know, you can come into the industry with more knowledge, you know, there are companies that are run by women that are run by people from different 
races and ethnicities. It's less monolithic than it was 30 years ago. I think finding the company where you can see that there are leaders from other backgrounds, maybe people who you admire and want to become like um, and who might look like you, there are opportunities. It's not the vast majority of companies out there, but it is possible. So kind of understanding what the landscape is and then finding the opportunities within that landscape is definitely possible. And it still is like, you really still can change lives with technology. There's so much that you can do. You know, there are lots of companies that are using it in a way that is really questionable, but you don't have to work for one of those companies. A little bit of optimism. I like that. And we will leave it there. Ellen Powell, thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. Me too. Thank you for having me. We'll jump into your mailbag in just a sec. But before we do, let me just remind everyone that Her Money is proudly supported by BCU. BCU is a credit union that helps its members take control of their money using a variety of financial tools and resources. And BCU's passion is to empower people to discover financial freedom by providing caring support and services that create the value that you deserve. You can learn more at bcu.org. And as we dive into our mailbag today, let me introduce you all to Chelsea Zhu. Chelsea is a fairly new member of the Her Money team. She is our associate producer. I'm very glad to have you here. Thank you so much for booking this interview and for teeing up this show. What'd you think? Yeah, wow. Thank you for having me. And I'm so excited that this is the episode that I'm appearing on because I think Ellen is just such an amazing person and she has such a great story. I thought that the thing that she said about inconsistent feedback was so insightful and relatable. I think especially as an Asian American woman, you always have this kind of pressure in the back of your mind that you know people are seeing you as kind of submissive or quiet But even when you push against that, like Ellen said, you know, you can also get backlash as a woman that you're just being too aggressive. Yeah, I related to that 100 percent. I feel like people when women and we've had discussions on this show before about ambition and negotiation and asking for what you deserve and just really putting yourself forward. And I have felt at times during my career that People look at you funny when you do that. People look at you as if you are being too much or too forward or too aggressive. And I think it's probably worse for Asian women, but I I think it's pretty bad for women overall. Yeah, it makes me really glad that I'm working for Her Money, where I don't have to worry about that because, you know, I'm working with all these really amazing women who give amazing specific feedback. So I'm really glad for that. And a few pretty good men as well. We definitely have more women on our team than men, but we had a a Her Money offsite in Philadelphia over the past uh, couple of weeks. And not that we were together for a couple of weeks, but we were together for at least a couple of days. And it was kind of amazing to me to have us all in one room. A year ago, there were six of us. Now, We've got 12 full-time and a few people who are consultants who are also heavily involved in the company. It makes me feel pretty good. And you are one of the people that I'm so glad is along for the ride. Yeah, I was so happy to meet everyone and really excited to see how we keep growing this year. Yeah, absolutely. All right, 
Let's take it away with our mailbag and our first question. All right. Uh, so our first question today comes to us from a member of our private Facebook group. She writes, my parents are aging and having memory issues. They still live in their own home and have always handled their own finances. They just had a significant financial fraud committed against them, whitewashing of checks, and they need my help. Working with them on this has shown me how bad their memories have gotten and how vulnerable they are. They've agreed to give me financial power of attorney, and I already have medical power of attorney. What else do I need to do to protect them? Are there tax implications for me if they add me to their bank accounts? We live in New York, and I'm one of five kids, but the closest geographically and relationship-wise to my parents. My siblings are all on board with me being the one to have power of attorney. Frankly, they're all glad it's not them. Your advice is appreciated. Thank you. First of all, let me just say I'm sorry that you are experiencing this, that your parents are experiencing this. It is so common. As we live longer, we see more people in our population with memory issues. And one of the first places we notice what's going on is often with the finances because bills go unpaid and you get a notification from a creditor that something was missed or somebody is not sleeping well and they're up doing an awful lot of shopping online or on the television at night and boxes start appearing in the home or papers simply start piling up and up and up. And so I'm glad that they have given you financial power of attorney. What you need to do to protect them is to go online and make sure that you've got passwords for everything, that you are fully linked into the accounts so that you can make sure that the bills get paid. You also should absolutely check their credit and then freeze their credit because identity fraud is rampant within this older population and a population that is having memory issues because they're not keeping up with what's going on there. We've got specific instructions about how to freeze your credit at hermoney.com. So go ahead and take a look at this. There are not as far as I know, specific tax implications for you once you're added to the bank accounts. What there are are estate ramifications. So if you are on a bank account and your parents should die, that money is going to pass to you because you are an owner of that bank account. And because you've got a number of siblings in the picture, that may not be what your parents intended. And so I would, at this point, sit down with your parents, with an estate planning attorney, try to scope out what their wishes are likely to be. And you handling things is one of those wishes. But then make sure that you've got the network of accounts and beneficiaries and legal documents established so that when your parents do pass away, the process of moving the assets from one set of hands to the next will happen as easily as possible. And the last piece of advice that I want to give you here is that sometimes stepping in and taking over another person's financial life, even if it's your parent and somebody that you love a lot, becomes overwhelming. There are 
services that can help you with this. There is an organization called Silver Bills that is a national bill paying service. There is an organization called the, I believe it's the American Association of Daily Money Managers, the AADMM. They have a website. So if you are looking for some people to assist you with this, those resources are there. And by the way, if you're listening to this and you've got questions about managing your own saving and your own spending, there's help for you out there too. Her Money has an online coaching program called Finance Fix, and we can help you with that. It's an eight-week program. You worked with a trained financial coach to build good money habits. You also work with other women who are learning in each meeting. So you get some one-on-one help, some group help. I pop in from time to time. Our next session starts on January 10th, right at the beginning of the year, so that you can start 2023 on the best financial footing possible. And you can sign up at financefix.com. Fix, by the way, is spelled with two X's. I hope to see you all there. Chelsea, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you for having me and for giving some great advice. You are welcome anytime. And in today's Thrive, let's talk about some ways to refresh your resume for 2023. A new year is a great time to reflect on your goals and open yourself up to new opportunities. And that might mean a change in your career. There is no better time to brush the dust off your resume and see what needs updating so that when your dream job opens up, your application will be at the top of the pile. At hermoney.com, we've got four big picture tips for refreshing your resume in 2023. Number one, be as specific as possible. If you are applying to a large company, chances are really good that AI is scanning your application for keywords. So if a job posting asks for experience with a specific program, make sure you include the name of that program in your resume. For example, instead of writing that you have graphic design skills, say you've got five years of experience using Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator. Second, Highlight concrete achievements. You want to show your potential employer that you are at the top of your field, and that means listing your awards, your certificates, any statistics that show your impact at previous companies, and again, specific. Instead of saying that you helped attract new clients at your old job, say you secured a five-year, six-figure contract with X, Y, and Z companies. The more numbers, the better. Once you have polished the content of your resume, do a triple, in fact, maybe quadruple check for grammar and spelling. Every employer, no matter what industry, wants to hire people who pay attention to details. That's why even a single typo could mean the difference between an interview and a no thank you. According to CareerBuilder, 77% of employers will instantly throw out a resume with typos or bad grammar. I have to say I am one of them. So make sure to read through yours multiple times. You can also run it through a free online proofreader like Grammarly or have a friend or a family member look it over. And 
don't forget to brush up on your formatting. Companies spend an average of six to seven seconds, not minutes, seconds looking at a resume, which is why it is so important that yours is clean, spacious, and easy to read. Use bullet points, use indentations, organize your information, and think about including a little pop of color just to stand out. If you're looking for inspiration, you can find some of our favorite resume templates at hermoney.com. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thank you to Ellen Powell for sharing her insights on how we can create lasting change for women and people of color in tech and beyond. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.